0: Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. Our Earth. What have we done to our Earth? Well, nature will survive. The real question is, what have we done to ourselves? Is COVID-19 nature's wake-up call, an opportunity to look at our world The pace and purpose of our lives, the drivers of our market-based economy, and the impacts of our peoples on our planet? What can we learn from indigenous peoples about recreating our human nature relationship with humility? What can we learn from indigenous peoples about regenerating the natural places that we love? What can we learn from indigenous peoples about rising above the fear, the force of a common threat to build communal resilience and common respect for every living creature on the planet? Rising from the coronavirus, as I believe we will, we have an historic opportunity to learn about how to be a thriving people in thriving places we call home. We can evolve to become a new humane humanity if we would only stop, look, and listen to the ways and wisdom of indigenous peoples all over the world. They are responsible for protecting nearly 80% of the intact ecosystems in our biosphere. They are the true guardians of Earth's vital ecosystems. They are the secret to our recovery from pandemic diseases like COVID-19 and other global threats like climate change. They are the people who are going to bring us back to human nature health. Let's listen to what Peter Seligman, Chair of Conservation International and CEO of Neotero, has to tell us about how he and his polycultural organization are going to help bring humanity back to health, back to real life on a thriving planet. I am here with Peter Seligman, who has for 40 years been an influential voice and inspiring voice in conservation, working with TNC, the Nature Conservancy at first, and in many years at Conservation International, where he is still the chairman of the board and of course former CEO. He's joining me here with Nia Taro, his new organization. I started in 2017. Welcome, Peter.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I would love first for us to share with our audience what does Neotero mean?
1: Neotero means our earth, and it comes from the Esperanto language, which was a language created in the late 19th century by an ophthalmologist and a banker to be the second language of all of Europeans so that there could be common understanding and better communication in order to avoid conflict and misunderstanding. It clearly was not successful, but it's a language that has somehow survived. It's fairly dormant. And as I was searching for the name for this new organization, I thought that that Esperanto was an appropriate language with a perfect mission for this new entity.
0: And certainly in today's world, uh, driven by this COVID-19 coronavirus, which we'll get to in a minute. Having one common language and common mission to mitigate the spread of this virus becomes super important. Maybe you could share with us a bit about what Nia Taro does, its mission to bring indigenous voices more to the forefront of conservation.
1: Sure. Well, first, I really appreciate this opportunity. You know, I spent my life looking at environmental challenges and spent my life learning that that nature doesn't need people. Nature is going to survive despite all the assaults we have on her. But people really need nature. As I was stepping down from Conservation International after being the chairman and the CEO and the co-founder for 30 years, I was really focusing with our team at CI on what's the role that nature can play in dealing with the enormous existential threat that climate change poses to all of humanity. And in our scientific work and in the assessments of the role of ecological systems in addressing mitigation and adaptation, it became clear that nature, principally through this extraordinary process of photosynthesis, is an extraordinarily efficient way of capturing CO2 and storing CO2 in ecological systems. And in fact, we began to realize that at least a third of the solutions for climate change of absorbing carbon had to be through natural systems. Freshwater marshes, salt marshes, mangroves, tropical forests, boreal forests, peat bogs. And when the scientists came back to me and said, this is a third of the solution, I asked them a natural question, which is, where on this planet Earth do we find these concentrations of carbon? And they mapped it out. And then the next question was obvious, who controls these territories, these carbon sinks? Who controls these places of irrecoverable carbon? And that's when I realized the power and the importance of indigenous guardianship, that indigenous communities are not only controlling and gardening about a third of the entire earth, but 80% of the intact ecological systems on our planet are found in their territories. And about a third of the forest carbon that we need to secure is on their territories. And that's when I asked another question, which is, who is supporting Indigenous peoples in terms of their guardianship? Are any entities really focused on that? And the answer, obviously, is no, that most of the philanthropic work that's looking at environment is directed in other avenues and other directions. And so that's why we decided that we should create a new entity. And so when I stepped down as the CEO of Conservation International, a small group of us came together and said, let's create a new organization whose sole purpose is to work alongside of, to accompany, to support indigenous peoples, indigenous communities in their self-determined, self-defined commitments to secure their cultures, their languages, their territories.
0: What really distinguishes some of the people that you're working with who are these guardians of the forests and the marshes and shorelines?
1: First, I'd like to give you a sense of the character and the culture of Nietero, because it's really important to understand that if you look at the history of Western civilization, we have from the West basically spent the last 500 years colonizing indigenous cultures. And that colonization has not been peaceful. It's mm-hmm. been the taking of territory. It started with the papal bull in around 1400 that basically said the 10 commandments, that commandment thou shalt not kill, that actually has an asterisk and it's thou shalt not kill Christians, but anybody else, you can take their territories and they can be killed. And so mm-hmm. that's how this movement across the earth, from Europe, basically started with an unintentional, but then an intentional genocide. And that emerged over centuries. When we started Mietero, it was really important that we look at how we needed to be structured and who needed to lead our organization. And we made a determination that to be successful, we had to be trusted in different places. We had to be trusted in the capital cities and in the power centers, but we also needed to be trusted in the indigenous communities. And those indigenous communities had a real legitimate right not to trust us. And so we decided to create an organization from the very beginning that was polycultural. So the chairman of our board is an indigenous woman, Vicky Corpus, mm-hmm. who is the UN Special Rapporteur on indigenous rights. And we committed that half of our board of directors would be indigenous. And the same thing was true about our staff that we really felt that our team had to be indigenous and non-indigenous. And I emphasize that because if we are going to be true allies, and if we are going to be able to bridge this legitimate distrust and fear of colonization that has ripped across most indigenous communities around the world, we had to actually focus on our own institutional DNA. I emphasize that because we have a lot of ground to make up because this is more than an environmental issue. It's more than just securing carbon and territory for the well-being of all humanity. It's a social justice issue. It's recognizing that there are communities that have lived in their place whose environment has shaped their culture and their wisdom over millennia that have been destroyed. And so when we talk about indigenous, clearly all humanity is indigenous to the earth, but there are communities of indigenous peoples who are still indigenous to their place, to the Amazon, to the boreal forests, to the Arctic, to the South Pacific, to parts of Africa, that are cultures that not only emerge from that place, but the memory and the knowledge still exists. And we felt that those cultures that had that deep wisdom, that had that deep connection to place, those were the people that we looked at as the indigenous leaders, the people that we could learn from, that if we could support their efforts to secure their places, we also, if we were humble enough, perhaps could learn from them and they would share with us the deep wisdom that they have about the reciprocal relationship between human beings and non-human beings, whether it's a mountain or a jaguar or tree. And so that's how we look at it. So I agree with Sylvia Earle that we're all indigenous. And I also think that we need to be crystal clear that most of people on this planet Earth have lost their connection to place. And those that have not are the indigenous communities and peoples that we are committed to accompanying and supporting.
0: Brilliant. This is exactly what I was hoping you would share, because it does feel, especially in today's world, I do want to shift to this coronavirus because it is on everyone's mind that, you know, in a way, this virus represents a disconnect to the world that we live in and an understanding that in a way we're not just the top predator. In a way, biology 101 is playing out in culling our population a bit as we've become over-consuming in different ecosystems. In a sense, nature is just naturally responding to a population which is... Overexploiting its natural resource base and moving out of balance. What can, in these COVID 19 days, can Indigenous perspectives on life and being connected to your environment teach us now that we're having to, in a way, slow down our societies, stop the travel, evaluate our lifestyles and the way that we? work with one another. What in this moment of crisis can we learn from an Indigenous way of being and being connected, like you said, intergenerationally through the place that they live and work?
1: So that's a really good question. And I would start by saying that the coronavirus doesn't distinguish between blood type. All humanity, all across this earth, are threatened by the Corona-19 virus. No question about that. What we should keep in mind is that there's a few things. The first that I think is important is we understand and feel very clearly the panic in every community. We're in lockdown. We're seeing economic implosion. We're worried about our neighbors. We're worried about our family. We're worried about who might unconsciously be carrying a virus that can infect somebody. Not one of us wants to be that vector, And that is a shared fear. And I would just say that if you look at indigenous communities around the world, they were infected generations ago by viruses that were brought in by Europeans who were immune to those viruses, but shared them sometimes unwittingly, sometimes wittingly, with a devastation of indigenous populations globally that we really are estimating to be about 90% devastation. Mm. So I think that what we understand is, number one, the fear that we are going through right now is not an original fear. It's been felt by the Spanish flu in Western society, but it devastated populations across the Americas earlier than that, indigenous populations. What we also see is that these cultures somehow have retained their resilience. They retained their humanity, they retained their connection to their place. In many cases, they have survived under and despite of the duress and the assault of colonization. And I think that we can look at indigenous peoples for their deep connection with the earth and the wisdom that they have. It's something that most Western cultures have lost. So there is an opportunity for us, if we are wise, to begin to listen to indigenous peoples to understand how do they relate to other beings. When President Trump decided that he wanted to buy Greenland, you know, I had a conversation shortly after that with the premier of Greenland, who was an Inuit man, and I heard him speak. And what he basically said was, we thought that was a joke. And the reason we thought it was a joke is that we don't look at ourselves as being separate from Greenland, from our place. We look at our place and ourselves and our ancestors and our descendants and all other living things that we share this world with as being interconnected. And it was as if we were being asked to sell our mother. So we knew it had to be a joke. And I think that part of what we need to actually understand is that If we can look at our lives and look at our relationships with other beings in a profoundly different way, we have a chance of actually solving some of these enormous challenges. We think of the Western civilization as being the great wisdom and the great source of knowledge, yet an unintentional consequence of the development of fossil fuel has been climate change. We need to look at indigenous cultures and think, what is their wisdom? Because they are just as intelligent and as wise and as experienced as we have ever been. So when you talk to Nainoa Thompson, who is the great wayfinder, the native Hawaiian who rediscovered the ancient art of celestial navigation in the Pacific Ocean, you realize that a thousand years before Europeans were able to leave the coastline, Pacific Islanders were using stars and waves to go directly across the ocean to remote islands. Deep wisdom and understanding. Deep connection to a rhythm. We see that in Inuit communities. We see that in Marubo communities in the northern Amazon. We see that in Polynesian voyagers. We see it in the Samburu people. We see it all over the world. Those are the cultures that we need to actually learn to listen to because they actually understand how the earth operates in a much more profound way than we do.
0: I'm thinking also, as you're speaking, that there's this concept of ownership and control, and you know, in the business community, that there's a hierarchy. These sorts of values don't seem to be so prominent in a indigenous way of thinking and mindset. And the same when someone gets sick, the, the community comes together and finds a way to make that person well, because there's a sense of we are part of this community together when one is sick we're all sick it's almost like a mindset and an ethic that permeates as you're suggesting ways of being rituals and relationships that is so vital right now it seems to our evolution as a species
1: when when we think at neotero about where we will work we break yes. our thinking down into big geographies which are the core geographies that indigenous peoples are the principal guardians of And how do we support their efforts for control over those territories? And so we think about three major geographies where we are launching. One is the Northern Amazon, clearly vital for, you know, carbon sequestration, for biodiversity, for water. If you think about the scale of the Amazon, you're looking at a geography that is hundreds of millions of hectares. And is a place that it's 880 million hectares. That's the size of all of the United States. It's rainforest. There's about 26 gigatons of carbon stored in the Amazon. So you're looking at these vast, vast geographies that are controlled by indigenous peoples. If you go to the South Pacific, you have 5% of the Earth's surface. The majority, 60 to 70% of the global tuna populations. The oceans as a massive absorber of carbon. Coral reefs as a birthplace of fisheries that we depend upon. The supply of fish that we eat. If you go to the boreal forest in the north, which is our third major geography, there is more fresh water there than any place other than perhaps the Amazon. You can fit the entire European Union into the Satu Nation of the boreal forests of northern Canada. You're talking about massive geographies under the guardianship of indigenous peoples. So number one, we look, where are those territories? Number two, we look at, are those communities still making collective decisions? And that is really important. Collective decision-making is essential. It's not a market base. We each own a piece, and so we figure out how to compete and sell what we got. It's more, we have a collective A community of people, elders and youngers, men and women and children, and it's a collective process of what's wise. Now, it's a slower decision-making process because it's collective, sharing leadership and listening carefully to each other. And so we look for those major geographies, and then we look for those communities that still make collective decisions, and we look for those communities that have the authority or the agency to make decisions. Those are our core partners. And those are the people that we think have the wisdom and the knowledge that we can actually learn from. We do not effectively make collective decisions. We parcel the territories into little bits and pieces that we each can own, as opposed to saying, this is ours. How do we cherish it? And so in those process of collective decision-making, you begin to see a deep respect for lessons that were learned in the past. So if you think about our inability to respond to climate change, it's because we look at our ownership and we don't see immediacy. We don't see a threat that's today. But Indigenous communities look at their overarching territory. They understand the rhythm and they see the changes and they understand what is happening. And that's why they are so fearful of climate shifts, because they understand the patterns and they see the changes because it's actually part of their culture. When I walk through the forest myself and I do a lot of hiking and I, we, my wife and I and our children, we farm in the middle of Washington State. You know, I was thinking this this weekend when I was walking across the farm that I'll see a plant and I'm thinking to myself, do I know the name of that plant? If I were a Yakima kid, who had grown up in that area. I would know for my elders not just the name, but also the use and the value and the relationship and the pattern. Uh, and so there's vast knowledge that we have lost. We have to regain that. There are two books that I think people should read that I find really powerful. One is called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer, who is an indigenous woman, a professor at state university of new york she's a botany professor but she's also an indigenous woman with deep knowledge of traditional uses and values of plants the second book is called sacred instructions it's written by a penobscot woman named sherry mitchell that talks about indigenous wisdom it really looks at this a bit from a matriarchal from a, a woman's perspective And it's brilliant and powerful in its discussions about colonization. It's so interesting. She writes that if the colonists that had been sent from Europe to North America had been accompanied by women, the damage would have been far less because women had a role of nurturing as opposed to men having the role of conquering. She has a really interesting perspective, but these two books are really worthy of understanding not only the implications of the colonization process, but I think much more importantly about the wisdom and the knowledge that can be gained from listening to indigenous voices. And the other piece that I would just touch upon just really briefly, because I think it's important. You know, there has been a disconnect often between conservationists and indigenous peoples. And there have been lots of questions legitimate questions raised about the behavior of conservationists in terms of how indigenous communities have been driven from their territories in the name of protecting a place. And it's happened many times. It still happens. But the reality also is that indigenous peoples and conservationists actually share a strong love of the earth, and they need to somehow bridge that relationship. Conservationists need to stop looking at Teddy Roosevelt as the great hero. He was a great conservationist. He referred to Native Americans as squalid savages. We need to begin to acknowledge what has happened to indigenous peoples. We need to begin to repair that damage and build a trust of mutual forgiveness, because the fact is that there's deep commitment for the earth in the environmental movement and with indigenous peoples, if we can bring it together, we actually have a chance, I believe, especially if we elevate the voices of young people, we have the chance of actually transforming the trajectory of how we take care of this place, our earth.
0: Through reconciliation, we can regenerate not just our lands but also our relationships. I love the focus on social justice as well. It's the entire narrative of healing, these conflict ridden relationships to land and to one another. That's really at the heart of your work at Neotero is what I've heard. And it I really appreciate that journey.
1: It is a profoundly awakening journey. I wish that I'd started it so many, many years ago. I think that there is an opportunity today for policymakers to recognize that discussions about what happens with the Amazon, discussions about what happens in the Pacific, discussions of what happens with big territories and indigenous territories need to really be based upon this idea that no conversation about how to secure indigenous territories should take place without indigenous voices at that table as equals in the conversation. So what Nietero is doing at the policy level is we are bringing indigenous peoples, we're financing them, working with them, our lead on policy is an indigenous woman to get them at the table dealing with the Convention on Biodiversity, dealing with all these negotiations. There has to be appropriate representation. You cannot have a discussion about the Amazon without indigenous voices at the table because it is their place, it's their wisdom, and it's their future as well. And the other piece of it is that we need to be thinking carefully about how do we amplify our understanding for the rest of the world. What we say is not nearly as important as what people hear. And therefore, we need to focus on how do we tell story and who are the storytellers. And the storytellers need to be not just great storytellers like you, Catherine, but you need to have of allies on those storytellers that are the indigenous peoples telling their own story because those are genuine stories and their voices should be heard, not through a filter, but directly.
0: I'm 100% with you. I just got chills when you said that and actually remember a comment made by someone I interviewed. I said, you know, what can we do to help empower indigenous voices? He said, hand over the microphone. (laughs) It's true. Just because I've got you three more minutes or so before you have to go... Just on the COVID-19, how fast different governments have coordinated their efforts to lock down communities, stop business, stop travel. Why have we not been able to do this on the climate narrative? If it's just as urgent and just as important, and we've got such an important agenda to reduce 50% of our carbon or to decarbonize our world by 50% in the next 10 years.
1: You know, our DNA is shaped by imminent danger. And so for millennia, we responded to the snake. We responded to the tiger. uh, We respond to the virus that hits us. And what we see immediately is what freaks us out and frightens us. And that's what's gone on with COVID-19. So the battle we've been having over decades now, of trying to get the world to understand that we are an important vector in changing the way weather works, impacting ice, impacting water, impacting pollination, impacting the health of species, of beings, of of animals. We have not been able to get the power brokers to respond because what they're worried about is the immediacy of economic flows that are essential for real-time livelihood. So one of the reasons that we are seeing the response we're seeing right now, the urgency we're seeing right now, is that the capitalist system depends upon buyers and sellers. And when you buy something you stimulate you give money to the sellers so they can buy the stuff they need and there's a cycle it's come to a grinding halt and it's come to a halt because People cannot be outside and the reason that we're looking and they cannot talk to each other, retail stores, the big companies are going to survive. They're going to get the bailout. The impact on the small business, on the young people and the middle-aged people and the elders that are working in small businesses is going to be profound because businesses that are small are drying up restaurants are closing, bars are closing, retails closing. That's what's happened. It's the economic impact that is really accelerating the engagement of the power brokers. And that's not felt in climate change. It is felt in COVID-19. If it were yes. felt in climate change, we would see a much more rapid response.
0: To be continued. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. Have a beautiful day.